Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. But he's agonizing here, and I think the question that he's agonizing over is, well, how's God going to save Israel? God has uh, come in the anointed, and Israel has crucified its king. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He says that he has unceasing pain in his heart. He has immense sorrow that he would trade. That he he and so he's going to kind of do, I think, like a hypothetical. You know, he says that not all, all of those who come from Israel are Israel, and then he's going to argue against the ethnicity being the thing, which he does, you know, and at length in Galatians and elsewhere. But he's going to belabor the point, I think, that the whole point of his gospel so far is not, I think the key, one of the key verses is verse 16. So then neither the one willing nor the one running, but of, the, of God showing mercy. Uh, I think that the point of all this is, going to be, is God's mercy. The hypothetical question that he poses in verse 22, which gets translated in different ways, I think that it really is a hypothetical question that he is going to spend the rest of, you know, he's going to sort of agonize over for three chapters. And it's that conditional, what if God, though disposed to display his indignation, meaning, well, I mean, God has shown his indignation and make known what's possible in terms of his wrath. But what if he tolerates, you know, the sort of vessels of, uh, of indignation? I mean, and I'm coming at this from a formerly Calvinist background where, I, my question was always, how do you know if God really loves you? If you're a Calvinist, I don't know that you can really answer that. How can you really know that God loves you? I think the good news of Paul's gospel to the Romans, he's already said it in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that neither death nor life nor angelic powers and nor anything else, any other creature can separate us from God's love. But I think that he's kind of going, well, wait a second, though, but how does that work itself out? in the fact that Israel has rejected her king. My understanding is is that it's not that Paul is going to say, well, there was these vessels fitted for destruction, which were, you know, the Gentiles. And this, or, you know, right, the vessels of wrath. And it's not these vessels of mercy that are somehow God's elect in some kind of abstract sense. It seems to me that Paul's whole point is, is that, Paul, you said, I think, in the last class, that if anybody's the, the vessel of, of wrath, I mean, it's... Christ, but it's also if anyone's the vessel of, of mercy. Does, did you want to jump in there? As you're describing this, N.T. Wright is taking a different tact on this. What Matt is running down, I uh, assume, is David Bentley Hart, and Hart's understanding is that this is a hypothetical, what if? What if God did this? And then he says, well, of course he didn't do this. Right. N.T. Wright's take on it would be, well, the vessel of wrath is both Israel and Christ, that Christ is the true Israel, that is, that Christ has been chosen for rejection and wrath, dying outside the city, or however you might read that. And so he would say, no, it's not a hypothetical question, that indeed Christ does make all of the move here that Israel also makes, that is summed up, though, in Christ. But it's not also just not only hypothetical. I think that, I, you know, and I think the heart can be helpful here. He's saying that, well, actually, everyone has sinned. 
everyone is guilty. That's the whole point of Romans. He, that's how he starts Romans 1. He says, he's talking to the, you know, he says, well, who are you? You know, you, you the judge, you that know the law, or who are, you know, the, everyone sinned, the Jews, Gentiles, yeah, everyone. I, I do think that the whole thing is brought to a head, just in my opinion, in chapter 11, verse 32, that God shut up everyone in a disobedience so that he might show mercy to everyone. I don't know how this works out. I, I vacillate between, you know, kind of like universalism and annihilation. I guess I'm a little closer to universalism. It's my hope at the very least. But it's, it makes sense to me of, of, the, of the book of Romans. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if El Chapo is going to go to heaven. <laughs> you know, I don't know if the, but then again, I don't know if the pharmaceutical reps who sold billions of dollars worth of opioids or and who are, you know, living on a golf course are going to be saved either. I do think that Paul's agonizing over the question and he seems to answer it in the, in the affirmative that God, I don't know how else to read it, that he shut up everyone in the disobedience, Jew, Gentile, so that he might show mercy on everyone. You know, I'm not sure who I agree with on this, or, or quite, I haven't quite figured out what might be at stake between N.T. Wright and David Bentley Hart. That is, Hart seems to dismiss the idea. I'm afraid that with Hart's reading, I don't know that you're saying this, Matt. I presume that what Paul is doing in 9 to 11 is just summing up all of human history. In other words, here's history from a God's eye point of view, and here's the movement of history, which would seem to fit better with the notion that Jewish failure or human failure and the bearing of the consequence of that failure and the exposure of that failure is part of the movement of history. You know, why this concentration on Israel as the point of salvation history? Because I think it is that the movement of history in Israel is indeed the way that salvation is working itself out and culminating in the Messiah. I'm afraid that we might lose that, and, and maybe not. Maybe you want to push back against that. But I'm afraid, afraid we'd lose that if we say, oh, Paul is asking a hypothetical question here, that what if God did this and then dismisses it? Well, I think that he, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question, but I think that the alternative, is, you know, what's the alternative? The alternative is that the, the vast majority, I think that maybe that's what Paul is sort of agonizing over. Because not only have the Gentiles, they're, they're idolatrous, but the Jews then have also rejected the Savior. So maybe that's the remnant language, you know, and that's what he means. He's like, man, unfortunately, only 10% are going to be saved or, or whatever the number is. That's why I stroke so strongly, though, and I do think that he's agonizing over it. I've agonized over it and still am. But I think that what you I love what you said about this being sort of Paul's retelling of human history. But, I, you know, in, in the very last verse, I think that that's why it's key that in 32, I don't know how else, in other words, to understand Romans 9 through 11, if you don't read it, first of all, as a whole, which we normally don't do, that's definitely not how the Calvinists read it. They read 9 in isolation from 10 and 11. What Hart is saying is, is, no, to understand the thrust of everything that Paul's doing, you have to read Romans 9 and 11 through 11 as one sort of section where Paul is working out that question, that hypothetical question. But he's coming to the resolution there, which would be very good news, if it's true, in verse 32, 
for God has consigned all to disobedience. That that's the answer to the what if. So that he might have mercy and all. Then he goes into the doxology of, oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom of God's knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable is word. I think the key verse may be in the very last verse of where I think that Paul's argument is going to transition from the theological almost into like the more pastoral stuff of 12. In verse 36, and this comes back to your point, Paul, about Paul's retelling of human history. He says in verse 36, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. Oh. In other words, it's, it seems to be like that's a huge claim, right? But that's how Paul ends his glorious sort of gospel of Romans, that from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's in the ESV. I'm not even sure if that's how hard, I don't know how hard translates it. But yeah, I'm same reading. thing, same thing. Yeah, so that's that's the ESV, and so so in other words, this this is good news if it's true, right? We can agree with that. That if God is the ground of all creation, which we know that He is as creations, in other words, that all things come from Him, all life, all being, all existence, that everything that Paul has talked about, you know, Paul Axton about death being a certain sort of secondary order of reality that's certainly not on the order of, of Christ, or sin, or human evil, not a dualism. Sin and evil and is not, you know, in, in sort of some sort of dualistic kind of struggle with God. It's just a failure. And that from him and through him and to him are all things. So to me, that's that like, okay, well, God, it, it, everything is that comes into being comes from God, and everything is going to return to him. Summation of human history. The summation of human history. That's the only intelligible way that I know how to read it. I mean, it's like most of the people that I know, even in the church, really want for myself, you know, reject the reality of the gospel, right? So it's like, it's an agonizing thing. It's like, why is it like this? Why is it like this? And I think if you really understand what Paul's sort of struggling with here, he's going, Israel has the promises. They have the oracles. They have the fathers. They have the, all this stuff. And it's like, and they, they don't get it. He's dealing with the church in Corinth and in Romans and, in, you know, in Rome and all these other churches. And we're going, man, and we're a mess. It seems like, I guess, God has just given everyone over to disobedience so that he might have... I assume also that... Thank God for his mercy. Yes. In verse 16, he says, And if the first fruits is holy, the whole mass of dough is two. And if the root is holy, the branches are two. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I assume that what he's describing then, yes, there is this admixture in which some of the dough or some of the branches that they are not bearing fruit, but what he's describing then is that nonetheless that the whole batch will be made fruitful and holy due to the remnant, due to the leaven, due to the part. That is, the part saves the whole. I don't know what you guys have in in chapter 11, verse 12, but sort of the full totality is the phrase that Paul keeps using of the Gentiles, right? He, he uses it again in verse 25, that the full totality of the Gentiles may enter in. That's the pleroma, right? That's the fullness, mm-hmm. the total number, the, uh, the entirety, the, the, the full number, the whole complement, the totality of the Gentiles. The, the pleroma is often used in association with God's sort of right. fullness. So I say, this is Dave Bentley Hart, so I say, did they stumble that they might fall? Let it not be so. I, I assume this is meganoita. This is God forbid. 
Rather, through their error comes salvation for the Gentiles, so as to provoke them to envy. But if their error is an enrichment for the cosmos, and their discomfiture enrichment for the Gentiles, how much more so the full totality of them. I think he is talking about the movement of history, that in this movement of history, there is a leavening, there is a remnant, there is a portion, but the point is not just the leavening or salvation of the portion, but the point is that through this chosen few, that it would be cosmic in proportion. My, my issue with universalism in, in that sense would be, you know, what is the point then of trying to be faithful if eventually, you know, everybody's going to be saved? It just it wouldn't really make that much sense. Even the whole argument about the branches, because the only way to enjoy that salvation is by being grafted in. So he even mentions about the Gentiles, you guys need to be careful, just not just because, you know, some branches were cut off and you were grafted in, it means you cannot be cut off, you know, once again. I think even in, in Jesus' sermons, he mentioned this kind of idea as well. Uh, you have two different plants growing together, you know, have weeds and then you have the, I think it was wheat, I think. And so one part of it is definitely, you know, used for something good. The other, the other one was for fire. So I don't know. I, I think chapter 8 through 11 with the whole idea of fullness, I think it's talking more about the idea that, you know, we have in this situation now Jews and Gentiles, which wasn't there before because the, the Jews, they just thought we are, you know, God's people and nobody else can enter in. Now we have the fullness because we have every, everyone. I think it was Peter. Yeah, Peter, when he, after he preaches at Cornelius' house, and he quotes from Joel, and in Joel he says the same thing. It's a, a, the all flesh, this whole idea of salvation is for all flesh. And you know, I don't think he's talking specifically of each individual that has ever existed or will exist. I think it's just talking more about the idea that, you know, it's for Gentiles and it's for Jews, it's for everybody. That's kind of how I'm reading that, I think. You know, I'm looking at in 25, whenever, you know, Paul says, the full totality of the Gentiles enter in, and thus all Israel shall be saved. Mm -hmm. Right? I think that that speaks to Alan's point. He's saying that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, but Hart's point here, though, is that that, that play Roma Maybe it's not the fullness. Maybe it's this in the sense that well, now the Gentile, now that the Gentiles are, are coming in, all of Israel will be saved. At least Mark's arguing though that in order for all Israel to be saved, the totality of the Gentiles would have to come in. It doesn't make much sense to me, guys. I'm gonna be honest. It's a very difficult. I think that this is one of the most difficult sections in Scripture. My pr presumption is that there there is the tension throughout. Maybe I'm just Japanese enough that I just want to agree with everybody. But I presume the argument is universal. In other words, the argument is dependent. No one's going to deny or one would think they wouldn't, that the import of the gospel is universal. And that's what Paul is arguing here. And so to understand this section, I presume that we should not do what the Calvinists do and try to qualify what Paul is saying in 9 to 11. That's not to say there isn't qualification to be made. In other words, the flow of the argument at this point 
does seem to be that there are two classes of people. There are Jews and Gentiles, and Paul is accounting for all people in those two classes, in the yep. same way that he talked about the first Adam and the second Adam. That's what Paul, I think, is doing in Romans over and over. He's using the biggest categories that he can. He's using Adam and Jesus. He's using, you know, Jacob and Esau. But, of course, Paul has in mind the actual narrative of the story in which Jacob and Esau are re reconciled. Whenever Jacob sees Esau, he says, if I saw the face of God. Esau was the enemy. Esau was the people of Edom. This was Israel's enemies. These were the idolaters. These were the people who hated Israel, who were always at war with them. They were terrified. The Esau was the one who traded his blessing for pottage, for, for a pot of forage, you know, whatever. And if you want to actually use the narrative function of that story, it's like, well, the brothers are reconciled. I mean, that's just how the story goes, right? I mean, so it's like, why even invoke, why, you know, if, of course, I think that you're right, Paul, that whenever you say, well, it's the history of salvation, well, that's Adam and Jesus. The history of Israel can be summed up in the story of Jacob and Esau, right? And it's like, so, well, if those brothers who were mortal enemies, terrified of one another, and if Jacob, the one, you know, you would think that Esau would say to Jacob, oh, it was like seeing the face of God. But that's not how it is. Jacob says it to Esau. What's the point of that narrative? Whether historical or allegorical or whatever Paul is doing here to invoke th those categories, other than to say, and then so he does that in the beginning in 9, but then, of course, the whole point that he seems to be making in 11 is that, well, yeah, God, you know, Jacob was a, Jacob was disobedient. Jacob, you know, we all know who Jacob was, the scoundrel or whatever. The right? trickster, yeah. I mean, and then he's Israel. I mean, that's his, that is, he gets his name just changed to Israel. Do I have that right? Jacob's, Jacob becomes Israel. Mm -hmm. Esau, of course, well, he sells his, you know, his birthright. He's the firstborn. He has everything coming to him, right? I mean, he should have, but Jacob supplanted him. They trick him. Actually, they kind of cheat. But the point is, these two brothers are, in the end of the story, reconciled. But they're both disobedient. They're both, and, and that's what I think Paul is saying in, in, in verse 1132. Well, God has confirmed both brothers over into disobedience so that he might have mercy on both brothers. And again, I don't know what else this, what else Paul's point is. I mean, I'm open, but if, if I'm wrong about that, I would love for someone to help me understand, well, if that's not Paul's point, then what is his point? What scripture is it that you're referring to about uh, when the fullness of the Gentiles had come in, then all Israel will be saved? Verse 25 of chapter 11. Uh, it's, it's there in verse 12 and in uh, verse 25. Hey guys, again, I'm not saying I have this all figured out. I, I, I really don't. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to, to, to say, well, what is the point of all this? It's like, I hope that it's the, at least, at the very least, with Von Balthus, I can say, well, that my, at least my hope is that God really is going to have mercy on me, you guys, El Chapo, everybody. You know, Willie, I don't know. It is, I mean, what he's saying is, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. In other words, Paul understands he's talking about hard things here. But he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. Right. And so what is, that's a, another one of the questions. Maybe it would help if we specify what is the mystery that's now revealed? Well, Christ has been, Christ has been born. That the mystery is that, you know, somehow God's 
plan was going to be fulfilled even with the Jewish un unbelief, even with their unfaithfulness. Their un unbelief actually serves to promote the fullness of the Gentile salvation. Uh, it's their stumbling that, that allows you know, that door to, to be opened. At, with what Matt was saying with, between you know, the two brothers, Esau and Jacob, I think the point maybe that Paul is making there is the same point he's making since, the chapter, since chapter one. He's dividing you know, humanity in two groups. Jacob represents Israel. Esau would be part of the Gentiles at that point because he's not part of the, he's not a descendant from Jacob. And so I think it's the reconciliation is that whole point that Paul was doing since chapter one, that Jews are being judged by their own law. The Gentiles are on the wrong too. So both of you are wrong. And so I'm bringing you together. And I think that was the whole point uh, there. I think in this situation, Esau is representing the Gentiles. He's not a descendant of, of Jacob. That the whole thing is impossible in the sense that Isaac never should have even been born. I think that what Paul's point here, though, is it's God's faithfulness. It's God's mm -hmm. doesn't matter. He says, though, it's not to the one who wills or to the one who, it's not, you know, I chose. I woke up every day and I chose the right thing. It's like, okay, well, maybe. But at the end of the day, it's God's, you know, goodness and faithfulness and love uh, and his victory over death, by the way, and I think that that would be the answer, like for the mystery. It's like, well, what's the mystery? Well, the mystery is is that the Jews and Gentiles conspired together to kill the Lord of Glory, and Yahweh raised them from the dead and overthrew evil and defeated it and it, displaced it with life. And the whole thing should have never even happened if it wasn't for God bringing Isaac from the dead, you know, from the womb that was as good as dead Sarah, for Abraham who was as good. It, there would be no Jacob. There would be no Esau. There would be no brothers to reconcile. It's all God's doing. Who and then he breaks out into doxology, and that's Paul's picture. Whatever it, we may not get the universality, but for him, the dividing wall of hostility, as he talks about it in Galatians, being broken down between Jew and Gentile. Not to say that everything rests on the the specifics of how the Jews, but there are many dividing walls, but for Paul, the archetype of division, of alienation, and then the archetype of reconciliation is to be found in that movement represented in Jacob and Esau, but represented in Israel and Gentiles. That that is salvation, and what he's describing then is a real-world breaking down of hostility the wall of hostility that I just presume is always part of the way that we do identity. It is that we need those walls. We need to keep them Mexicans down there or whoever those people are at the border, or we need to keep those Gentiles out in order for us to be Jews. And so that way of doing identity, I presume is Paul's real world practical way of describing salvation. Your psychotheology of sin and salvation—it's like you're screwed. Everyone's under the dominion of death. You can't do this thing apart. I every single day, I feel like God shows me that apart from His mercy, apart from His love, it's not about you know. I can't do it. I can't be the person that I want to be. I, I can't be you know what I'm saying the 
I can't love God with all my heart and soul. Somebody doesn't agree with you, Matt, and I'm not sure who it is. No, no, I know. But I think that uh, we all require God's mercy and love. But thank God that God has just determined in Christ to have mercy. I, I, that's what I think. So it's like I can get self-righteous about it. It's all about my will. It's like, you know, I can choose every day to be this righteous person. It's like, well, I try. <laughs> but it's like, but I fail. I really do. So it's like at the end of the day, I can only, even as someone who I feel like tries to, you know, do ministry for a living and says my prayers with my wife every day, has Christian friends and all this stuff, it's like, well, I need God's mercy. But the good news is I think I have it in Christ, right? Then the question is, and maybe this isn't a very good question, how is Israel saved? In a sense, if we can answer that question, we answer the, the problem, the what's at stake here. In other words, how, how, would, the, how would all of Israel be saved? We start building a temple first, and uh... <laughs> we need to get some spotted calves raised. They're working on that in Alabama. Um, we need to get that priesthood up and going again. In other words, I, there, there's a mystery here. I think we get the mystery that everybody's saved in Christ that's saved. If you're saved, you're saved in Christ. But I'm presuming that we may, in other words, Paul is describing this with a bit of tension involved, and that is that he's saying the gospel has been preached to all people everywhere. You know, this is the, the picture, you know, how will they hear? And he says, well, the gospel has gone out into all of the world. Paul has no problem living in this kind of tension in which he is envisioning all people brought in, even as he is discussing the reality that not all people are there yet. And I just presume we have to live in that tension. We know that if any, that there is a very narrow path, the way is narrow, and yet it is cosmic in its implication. And we kind of understand that, that the leaven, a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole dough, the whole lump of dough, that the root then will make the whole tree holy and clean, but I can't tell you the specifics. There's this whole sense that I still think we're very much caught up in a, I'm going to save myself. We're all Pelagians, as if our faith, you know, that sense in which salvation is totally of God. And that's what we proclaim. And it's exciting and wonderful to follow Jesus now because there's just a whole bunch of really cool things that happen because of that. And I just encourage people to follow him now and, and not later, but I've been toying with this universalism stuff for a couple of years now. Well, I think, I think we're all functionally universalists. I mean, if we really believed that people were going to somehow spend some sort of eternal torturing happening somewhere or even be zapped out of existence, I think we'd be on our hands and knees begging people day and night. Come on, you, this is going to be horrible. Mind you, who wants to follow a God that says, I love you, but if you don't love me back, I'm going to burn you forever. <laughs> so we kind of caught in a in a dilemma there. You know, yeah, there's things we have to work out. Like there, there maybe like um, Matt mentioned El Chapo, and we think of the worst people. But what makes him any worse than me? People that have a lot of pain in their life, and as I said a lot before, hurt people, hurt people. And I'm sure if we could do the psychology and look at their brains and see the kinds of things that are going on, or the or how they were brought up, and the the way they've been victimized and victimized. We'd have empathy for them, too. And this is the whole, we spent yesterday just talking about restorative justice. So if we imagine if there is some kind of 
cleaning up that's going to take place in the next life. Purgatory works for me, the idea of that. Some people might have a few years to spend. I think, you know, I just can't see it being anything but that. Because God's hyper-relationality, the fact that everyone is to be in a relationship, for us to have to be living in eternity without being connected to all of the relationships and the people that are part of our circles and the way that it's meant to be, I just can't imagine that being something God would do other than that we'll be there together somehow. We all need to go through purgatory. In what I'm about to say, I'm talking against me. I, I'm afraid that okay. in my own understanding that I've said, well, there is this deception that has been put upon all people. But by saying that, I don't want to do away. Yeah, but there is very much the sense that there are levels that people can achieve in evil and I, I, we can't just be dismissive, which I think you often get in some forms of contractual theology. Oh, we've all sinned, and therefore all people look exactly the same. In other words, I'm afraid that might be what somebody would say back to me. I would want to say yes, but understand that we don't just say that everybody is identical, that Adolf Eichmann and Adolf Hitler, they may share a a sinful genealogy with a little child, but we should not lose the sense of, yeah, there is a radical problem, there is radical evil that Christ is defeating. In other words, I think that what Alan is saying, that in a kind of cheap universalism or in a kind of failed contractualism, just those distinctions we're all aware of, we don't, it's not like those things are obliterated. I'm just telling you, man, I, I don't I, I don't subscribe to some sort of cheap universalism. I think that, you know, whenever Tim was talking about purgatory, I mean, that's the idea of a purgation or a burning away. And this is the most difficult. I, you know, becoming holy, I think trying to become holy is like the most difficult task that we could ever aspire to, precisely because of the gravity, Paul, of your of what you're describing in your book. We're perverse. We're screwed up. We think wrongly about our God. We think wrongly about our neighbor. We think wrongly about ourselves. We have a very difficult time being faithful. We have a very difficult, you know what I'm saying? It's like these are, we're, we're in deep trouble, man. And so it's a hard thing to. Apart from that, we're good. <laughs> yeah. I just did a, I recorded a podcast. At first I thought, man, this is so boring. I'm not going to put it out there. And then I listened to it. But what, what I'm doing in the podcast pertains to this. That is that, I don't know if you all saw the, the Netflix series on the serial killers and the guy that does the uh, FBI profiling. I think it was Mindhunter or Mind Manhunter. Hunter. Or yeah, yeah. Like yeah. And the point I'm making in the podcast is, in other words, the reason you can profile a serial killer is that they're following a, a predictable pattern. And what the guy that does this originates this is a psychologist, and he's really doing what Freud says is made possible in the clinic. That is, the sicker somebody is, the more neurotic they are, the more they follow a kind of type. They fit into a kind of pattern. And my point then in taking that, and then you can extrapolate from that to a culture, what is taking place in Japan there is a particular type that develops in Japan in terms of the death drive or death instinct in which people 
almost as part of their identity of being Japanese, give themselves over to death. That is, that we're enculturated into this. Adolf Eichmann is a perfectly good German. He's a healthy, good bureaucrat. In other words, if Germany had won the war, I presume that Eichmann would have enjoyed a glorious career in the German Nazi bureaucracy and would have been hailed as a kind of example of mental health. He's pure evil, understand. This guy is radically evil, but why is he radically evil? Precisely because he's a good German with the rise of national socialism. That is the way in which we are enculturated into any particular culture. There is a genealogy to that that we can trace. In saying that, I just don't mean to reduce everything to the same, though. I'm just saying, well, there are traceable things in this that we need to to be able to say. In other words, the whole discourse on Japan then carries over to the United States because actually what is taking place in Japan is just the mirror image of the United States. They're they're in a, a kind of dialectic. That's my point there, that we can trace, I'm presuming, understanding that there is salvation, and what I'm claiming is, and we can trace that, first of all, specifically in the Old Testament, the way that that's working, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, the wisdom of Solomon, that we can begin to specify that they are identifying the work of death as it is taken up in particular individuals. You know, think of the two prostitutes, the one that would slice the baby in half, that that is the story that just gets told again and again, culminating in Christ, that what Christ is exposing in his own apostles, and this gets to my you know, the point with Judas. I suppose in the history of, you know, El Chapo, we could go through bad guys, but the supreme bad guy in the New Testament is Judas. But Judas is one of the apostles. And whatever's wrong with Judas, whatever his problem is, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And when he's washing the disciples' feet, that, that's the point at which he's describing the betrayal by Judas. And the washing, then, is a washing in which you're not all clean. You're not all clean of the sin that is there in Judas. You're all infected in the same way, so that it's precisely from the foot washing that Peter does his thing and Judas does his thing. They're both on a path in which they would prevent Jesus from going up to Jerusalem and dying just two different versions of the same thing. Neither one of them, you know, maybe Peter, Peter's willing to go down as long as he's swinging his sword, taking off ears, he's, he, he'll do it. But Judas really doesn't even want to do that. In other words, they're avoiding the implication of the foot washing. The implication of the foot washing is that you become a servant like Christ is a servant unto death. The point being that and I'm just throwing this out here. It's not clear to me that Judas has ever counted out. Paul takes the place, perhaps. He's the 12th, right? He's brought in. I'm assuming that that whole episode with Matthias, we never hear of Matthias again. But the one who does become the apostle says that I am the chief of sinners. 
In other words, he takes up where Judas left off. <laughs> Judas is a betrayer, and so is Paul, until he meets Christ. And so the worst of sin, I presume, is represented in what Judas did in handing Jesus over. The verb there, the phrase handed over, is used again and again, though. Pilate handed Jesus over. The Jews handed Jesus over. They all hand Jesus over. And so the sin of Judas, they're all implicated in it, in this handing over. So that I presume that this height of evil, as represented in Judas, is precisely what Christ is confronting in the foot washing and at the Last Supper when he challenges Judas. So, Dr. Axum, what would you do with Matthew? Jesus then says, the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written to him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. I'm not claiming I know the destiny of Judas. Remember, Matthew's my favorite. He's stuck in Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. He hasn't quite got the full revelation. That's why he's got sheep and goats in his gospel, too. Perfect McDonald does the whole thing, uh, you know, on Judas. If you guys haven't read McDonald, by the way, this is your weekly reminder. I think that that's McDonald's idea of all this is the, you know, the, the, the purging that even Judas, that's not who God created Judas to be. But the whole story of the Bible, though, is a story of betrayal. Like, it's the whole story is the story of Israel betraying her God, being an unfaithful whore. There's all sorts of different ways that the Bible describes the treachery of Israel that culminates in the crucifixion of her king. But Paul, just be, from your own, and I think that you're right here, that if the cross, that if it's a cruciform hermeneutic, and if on the cross God in Christ says, forgive them, I, they don't know what they're doing, forgive them. Maybe, maybe Jesus was just talking to the Pharisees. I don't think so. I think that Jesus, that was God's final word to, to, to the world concerning its deception, concerning its wickedness, its betrayal, its treachery, that forgive them, Father, that they, they don't know what they're doing. He then gives up his spirit, and then three days later, Yahweh raises him from the dead. You know, God raises him from the dead. And you're right. I think that's a great insight that Paul takes the place of Judas. That we're, But that's all of us. We're all the betrayer. We're, we've all been consigned over into disobedience. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I, th you know, I, I don't know if Hark says it that strong, but I'm saying that I think that Paul's entire argument of Romans culminates in chapter 11, verse 32, and possibly in 36, when he says that well, everything's from God and everything's through God and everything's to God. The, the all things just keeps, you know, so it's like, I don't know. It's what Tim said. It's like, Will God suffer? The question is, is will God suffer the loss of even one of his children? You know, maybe their, their hard-headedness, their hard-heartedness, their whatever. Did, maybe the father said no whenever Jesus said, forgive them. I don't think so, though. Right? So it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know how it's going to, what that's going to, to, to be like. But I, th I think that Tim actually makes a great, I mean, Tim, what did you say about God is saying, you know, God is love, you know, I love you all. Yeah, I love you all, but uh, you need to love me. And if you don't, I'm going to torture you forever. I mean, that's the gospel. That's the Romans road. That's what we've been teaching. That's what we've taught. And that's like, I don't think people want to have anything to do with that God. And that, that, and that God is being deconstructed everywhere. 
the number of people now that have left, like, I don't know what the numbers are of people leaving evangelical church right now, but it's absolutely mind-blowing. And the blogs and, and the people I'm following that are setting up organizations and ministries that people that are getting set free from that picture of God is incredible. I mean, you guys, you guys know Science Mike? Tell them about this guy. He, uh, you know, he went through kind of a period of atheism, lost his faith or whatever. Now he's got an organization. I think he's got somewhere in the in the forty thousands of dollars a month U.S. coming to his organization from disenfranchised evangelicals. My daughter was my my son was dating a girl who's not even a Christian. She supports him because he's touching a nerve of people who have want nothing to do with an evil God. You know, again, that, and I, Paul, everything you said, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I understand, and, and same with Matt. It's, it's that we've got to get our head around it, though. We've, I think we've got to understand who we're, what this God is like. And I think we, we, we end up like Israel. The, the, you talked about there's the saved and the unsaved. There's the in, there's the out. That kind of language just breeds indifference to those that haven't seen, that haven't got the light. And I always say, when you talk about the narrow road, to me the narrow road is those who are uh, following David Bentley Hart and universalism. Because it's not an easy road to travel. You lose <laughs> friends. People hate you. They'll, they'll put you out, etc. Et That's the narrow road, Matt. <laughs> Broad is the road that leads to destruction. You get 50 gold stars. To for not believe that is horrible. It's, it destroys the faith of people all over the place. <laughs> Turn them all on their heads. Is, is there, I guess my question would be, and maybe this is just me theorizing, and I feel like there's some biblical foundation to this, but like the idea, again, I think I talked to Dr. Axon about this, but just the idea of love and the idea that relationship is very important in this whole conversation yes. that we're having. And it seems like some of the language that I hear you guys using Maybe there's more to it that I just, I don't know yet, so I don't understand it the way you do, but it seems like the relationship doesn't really matter. That the choice, yeah, sure, God can forgive, that's who, that's, he is preloaded with forgiveness in any and every situation, but Matt, you can forgive me, and I can flip you the bird and continue to not care who you are or what you feel towards me, just because God is one way doesn't necess necessitate that that fixes everything for everybody. If the resurrection, if the whole Bible story teaches us anything about God, it is that he is the God of life. He is the giver of life. He is not the destroyer. He's not the annihilator. That's the other way to go is to say, well, no, God's the torturer. God's the annihilator. He'll just, he'll annihilate you. You know, he's, a, but the whole story. No, we're the, we're the ones that are good at that. That we're the ones that we're good, right, that we're good at that. What we're, I think, or what I've always thought my whole life is that God will destroy you <laughs> if you don't play ball, <laughs> all right? And it's like, okay, maybe that's true. But what I'm starting to understand is, is that, no, actually God has nothing to do with death, as the article that, that Tim talked, uh, shared with us, that God has nothing to do with death. God has nothing to do with destroy. He's not the destroyer. Satan is. He did not come to kill. He came to give life. If anyone, including El Chapo, and forget about El Chapo, because there's way bigger <laughs> criminals in the world than El Chapo uh, who, are, who are running corporations. We need a, we need a, a Canadian criminal to use yeah, we, yeah, we need uh, Trudeau. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's not fair. I think that God's love 
if, if for God to be God has to be, uh, the, that's what the cross shows us. He's the God of forgiveness, of mercy, of love, of compassion, of restoration, restorative justice. It's not punitive. That God does not watch his deceived children that Paul writes so well about in his book, just throw themselves into the fire without pulling them out. And I just think that if, Trent, you, I mean, it's a good point, but it's like, but if I truly, I think that if you truly understand love, even for a moment, that someone loves you, Al Chapo loves his wife. If you can get a sense, even for just a fraction of a moment, of the power of love, I think that you can't help but to love the beloved. You can't help but to love back. Love requires, it'll eventually it will elicit a response from you, and that response will be, it's more powerful than death. Love is more powerful than our sin. It's more powerful than evil. It, it will. It, that's the story of the cross, is that it will overcome our rebellious, stiff-necked refusal. It's like love, we all know that love is going to save the world, I think, right? It's like we, we believe that love is going to save the world that it already has in Christ and that God is love. And so how can anyone, especially if there's some room for the ages, you know, that, that's the New Testament of the Ionios, the word for the ages, the age. Do we imagine that like our finite sort of failure can outlast the infinite patience and mercy and love of God? I just don't buy it. I don't buy that. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that that's possible. You know, not even for the most uh, recalcitrant sinner. The it's McDonald's phrase of ten thousand steps up out of the darkness into the light. In other words, once you get just a, a glimpse of God's goodness and light for even a moment, even one movement of repentance is enough to begin the long ascent up out of the darkness and into the light. And that all things, like Paul closes his whole argument in, in, in Romans eleven, that, that to him and through him. And, you know, uh, for him, all things exist and move and have their being. And that my, my understanding is, is that he, my hope at least, is that he's not going to lose any of that which he's created to sin and to evil and to death. And that could even possibly, I mean, I think my next blog is going to be on Bolgakov's, uh, you know, Apocatastasis uh, of the Fallen Age. Yeah. And I guess, so my, you know, just the part where I, I'm at and I'm not saying you're wrong but just where I'm at is just getting into things like in uh, Romans 10 for for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes like there seems to be this element of belief or if you even go back before the comparison of how the Israelites but Israel pursued a law or not arrived at that law why because they did not pursue it by faith which is what he was saying the Gentiles did, that they pursued this law, but they pursued it by faith, and it comes out into this belief in Jesus Christ. So, like, I get what you're saying. I guess what I tried to explain to you a while back, too, is I just have a, I have a hard time. I feel like there's this bridge that needs to be built in this discussion that I'm just having a hard time building a bridge from where you're at and to connect it to this bridge where I'm at of where there's this element of belief and faith and yeah, it's not by works, but there's still some sort of real life ontological stuff going on in terms of what our orientation to death then is. We can't do it ourselves. We can't build righteousness ourselves, that it's got to be done through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and hopefully, you know, you're not born the son of El Chapo. Hopefully you're not born into a crime family where you're being taught from, a, from the youngest age that this is that loyalty to the family is everything that you that you have to you know you can't transgress that law 
uh, of dishonor, whatever. And it's like, and you, you, you learn from a young age what it means to be a part of a particular community. It's like, well, thank God, you know, I, I won the, the lottery and didn't end up in that situation. Thank God I didn't uh, lose the lottery and I wasn't born a, a Karamajan girl out in the middle of, you know, Karamoja, Uganda, where they don't know about Jesus. I guess what I'm, what, you know, I think that the real world salvation that Paul, that Dr. Axton talks about, and the, is, that is the way that it is. It's like, well, that is my, Christ is my only hope. I mean, and that is salvation to me. I mean that literally. It's like, I know what, it likes to live, what it's like to live without Christ, and it's damnation. It's, it's hell on earth. It's, so once you believe, it, that becomes your, just the hope of the resurrection is strong enough for me, even on my, I think my worst day, right? That that hope is a real thing. It's salvific. It can get you through. It can make you not put the gun to your head and kill yourself or whatever. It's like, well, I'm hoping that maybe Jesus is Lord and that, you know, life is going to win out, you know? But again, I just want to say one last time and echo what Tim was saying is that I think that belief is key. I think that all that stuff is baptism and all these different things. But what's really key what the good news is, is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. That God is love, that God is good, that God is merciful, that God has, vic has total victory over sin and death and evil, and that nothing can separate us from his love. I don't even think our sin can separate us from his love, because that's the implicit thing that's in the background. What we're really imagining is, is that, yeah, but if I don't believe, yeah, but if I keep sinning, it's like, no, it's like even while, while we were sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. God is not predicated upon his creature's belief or actions or anything. God's predicated upon nothing. His love is the most real thing that there is, I think, in our existence. It's the, it's the ground of all, of everything. And so it's like, well, we can choose to participate in that and or not to our own peril, but that doesn't determine who God is. God loves me whether I go on a killing spree right now. Sure. But I guess, I think, are I think, we having a discussion on who God is or who we are? Yeah, I think that's the disconnect. You're actually on the same track here, and that is that Matt or the Apostle Paul is not, and if he is describing, and I think he is describing, a cosmic universal salvation, but it's not that people don't have to participate in it. That is, it's still a real world. The salvation is still a practical salvation that is being worked out in a present tense reality so that you can identify the fruits of this salvation. That is, that the love, joy, peace, that these practices are immediately salvific, and the death and anger and jealousy and rage are immediately damnable. And so I don't think there's any disconjunction between what you're both saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To be saved is to participate in the faithfulness of Christ. And to not participate in that faithfulness is hell, is damnable. And, and it's to say that yeah. human will... I, the, the Gospels teach us that human will, whether it's Judas or Pilate, does not have the last word. God has the last word. And the last word is life, come forth, you know, resurrection. It's like, well, if there was ever like an example of like a human being's ability to sort of control the story, it would be in Judas. It would be in Peter. It would be in Pilate. 
it, you know, it's like, well, these are the people who are exerting their will against God the Son and killing him. And But God says he doesn't give human will the final word. He, you know, he just doesn't. That's not how the story goes. Sorry, what you were saying just about the, uh, the, that faithfulness of Christ, of course, that's the, the new perspective on Paul. But one of the things that Doug started out right from the beginning of the week, and he talks about Paul's gospel, he uses the term PPME. Now, I'm, I don't know whether that's in uh, God and the, uh, the, the deliverance of God, but for him it stands for, it, these are some really big funk words, pneumatologically participatory martyrological eschatology. So it's the, the, the huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit, for starters. That's yeah. why he's got the pneumatological participatory, which is exactly what you just mentioned. We participate. And we are, you know, the, the perichoresis. We're, we're drawn into the Trinity. Martyrological, which means it's about the cross. We only get there through. It's going, it's, it's down the rungs, not climbing. And eschatological, that's the, the resurrection, the breaking in of God. So it's a, it's a very interesting way of framing the whole story. You know, I, like I say, I still have to get my head around a bunch of it. But just the fact you mentioned that word participatory. And that's a very different from, oh, good, I've got my saved hat on. Now I'll just wait around and see what happens. And, and my body is created from my, my soul, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit, I think, in a resurrection-centered theology, takes on an, a key part of this. Not that we might make the Holy Spirit a kind of magical thing or, or a gaseous thing, but the Holy Spirit, I think, is the least mysterious person of the Trinity. Because if you're loving, if you're peaceful, if you're nonviolent, if you're mm. doing the things that Jesus did, there's the Holy Spirit. If you're participating in a community of people, I presume uh, I've almost come around to Richard Hayes, not completely his view, but usually when we think of the Holy Spirit, we're thinking of something primarily individualistic. But I think, in fact, we feel the shaping of the Holy Spirit in community, that the Holy Spirit is something that we have corporately, mm. are being discipled, trained up in community, where we learn the discipline of following Christ, the discipleship. That is, then, the picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a theological hot take, if I've ever heard one, that the Holy Spirit is the least mysterious person of the Trinity. That's a theological <laughs> hot take. Love it. That the Holy Spirit's obvious. And I, but I think what we would do, and maybe this gets into the whole mystery thing, uh, I think that what we want to do is to, in our idolatrous tendencies, is to in some way fall back into an, a, a kind of apophatic, experiential, mystic, uh, ecstatic sort of experientialism that in some way removes us from mundane reality. But I think the reality is that, no, the Holy Spirit, in fact, grounds us in a very earthy, relational, communal group of people. Uh, again, I think that because we misunderstand the mystery of Christ, we're still, you know, we're still projecting a kind of apophaticism, a kind of idolatrous notion that it's God's unknowability that's the best thing about him. And so, too, then, our own ecstatic experience 
is, I'm, I'm doing the devil here, is then the height of spirituality. No, I think it's actually just the opposite. I want to be a Montanist. <laughs> Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.